today, we would uh, be looking at Matthew 6 and 18. I felt it necessary to cover these passages. Um, I, I don't think I've ever actually spoken specifically on these two passages. In the life of a pastor, um, in the life of someone who is charged with encouraging and exhorting his fellow brothers and sisters, uh, there are themes that tend to repeat. And one of the things that I've seen more often than any other spiritual difficulty or uh, malady is that of unforgiveness, specifically concerning un unforgiveness towards both our fellow man, but also in, in a slight way, unforgiveness towards ourselves. I think that these passages do a great job in identifying what is the heart of God concerning forgiveness, and what are the distinctive Christian aspects of forgiveness that other forgiveness, mere humanistic forgiveness, cannot uh, touch. One of the things that is helpful to understand is Christian forgiveness, or forgiveness as understood being, being enlightened by those scriptures, is not mere pardon. You're not just dismissing. And it is not mere uh, permitting, as in condoning. You're not just saying, that thing that someone did, it's okay that they did that. Forgiveness is the recognition of a moral wrong on the behalf of someone else and releasing them from their debt. That's what these passages make plain. It does not, it does not say, oh, your debt didn't exist to begin with. And it doesn't say that I, I just won't choose to ever exercise that debt, although you'll still be a debtor forever. Rather, it says, I will wipe the debt away. I will remove the debt and write a credit in its place. And so with this parable that Jesus presents to us, I believe it has massive implications for how we are to understand this uh, discussion of, of, of practicing our faith in the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, is the highest element of Christian teaching. That is, Jesus Christ's specific instructions to his new form community, his disciples, and as how they are both to live before others and before God. And with regard to that, this passage uh, often becomes uh, twisted from its intention, and we're going to look at that this morning. So, with regard to this idea of forgiveness, I want to look at four aspects of how forgiveness is a prerequisite to discipleship. Do, does everybody know what a prerequisite is? It's that's a big word, but uh, whenever, if you want to take physics 102, what do you have to take before you get to physics 102? Physics 101. Physics 101 is said to be a prerequisite, or it's required, a requisite required beforehand or pre. That is, forgiveness is a necessary aspect of Christian morality. That is how you live your life before you can even become a disciple of Christ and walk as a disciple of Christ. Jesus commands that you forgive him. In his very opening sermon on what it means to be a disciple, what it, what it means to be a follower of Jesus, he says, if you do not forgive, you cannot be forgiven. I want to assert that Jesus is not saying that you have to forgive in order to be forgiven, but rather that you forgive because you are forgiven. 
Now, while the first passage in Matthew 6 seems to indicate that Jesus is saying, you won't be forgiven unless you forgive, he does say that, but he doesn't say that you will be forgiven only after you forgive others. It is the case, it's my opinion, and I'm going to attempt to argue strongly, that it is only after we have been forgiven completely that we can forgive others. And with that in mind, I want to look at these four aspects. I want to look at Matthew 6 in in the fact that Jesus commands us to practice our righteousness. I want to look and we'll step by uh, step through the Our Father uh, verse by verse and describe what the Our Father teaches us about the way that God has set up his world. We're going to look at forgiveness as a reward. Uh, in this passage, I believe there's a pattern over and over again. Jesus says, don't do something, do something else, and you will have a reward. I believe that Jesus is trying to indicate to us that forgiveness is a reward. And then finally, uh, we're going to look at the gospel in Matthew 18. Uh, the first verse of Matthew 6 Verse 1, it says, beware of practicing your righteousness. This introductory statement is a a statement that kind of gives a setting for the next 18 verses, or the next 17 verses. And with that regard, this is a summary statement for the rest. Jesus is teaching his disciples how they are to live out their Christian life, how they are to practice their faith. Uh, A kind of special theological word, word would be that this is a pietistic message, as in Jesus is talking about the things that people do in carrying out their faith or their piety. Beware, verse Matthew 6, 1, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Jesus says to beware, and then connects it to another idea, saying, for then. First, we can infer that we should be practicing our faith. Now, this may seem like a no-brainer or uh, an easy conclusion, but the Christian life is not a set of intellectual ideas that are just to be believed or asserted or argued about or passed off on a checklist. You don't simply read a book of doctrine and then declare, I am a Christian. Christian life, the way that we live as humans redeemed by Christ before God the Father, is to be fleshed out. The the theology and the understanding of who God is and what he's done is to gradually, over time, begin to shape the way that we live, and it must take root in our lives. Believes absolutely must be put into action. Jesus is saying, beware of practicing your righteousness before men. He doesn't say, don't practice your righteousness. He doesn't say, "Don't, don't carry it out. Second thing that we notice from this verse, the for then connection, is Jesus is is extremely uh, concerned with you getting a reward out of your Christianity, out of your practicing of your righteousness. He says, don't do these things because if you do, you will have no reward. And so with this, with this regard, Jesus is, is really getting at the root of how you fast, pray, etc., Jesus is is concerned ultimately with the heart motivations behind your actions, not that you do or don't do the actions. In fact, we're going to notice in a second that he never leaves it as an option for his disciples to do these things, but rather says when you do these things. Jesus teaches us how we are to approach the almsgiving, that is giving to the poor, something that we just in a way did, although this church does not directly 
return money out into the world, we as Christians also should be giving to causes that directly uh, affect those who are poor and needy, and, and many of us do that. But Jesus goes on to say, concerning fasting, concerning prayer, these are the particular types of actions that indicate the motive behind the action. So Jesus goes through both almsgiving and uh, prayer, and then reiterates or or tells again a message concerning prayer. Um, at at this time, we're going to go through the Our Father and. One of the things that I'd like for you to notice is the Our Father is an intentionally structured prayer. You and I, uh, we're probably uh, all from churches, most of us are from churches, that the only types of prayer that take place in those uh, churches are prayers off the cuff, if you will, or on in the moment, or another phrase, flying by the seat of your pants. As in, you get up and pray, or whether you're praying for a meal, or you're praying for, uh, you know, something in a service somewhere, you you just kind of spout off a prayer at your whim. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong about that, but it is the case that the church has used for very uh, a very long time ma- the majority of the prayers used in the church have been written, and that doesn't mean that they are subpar or substandard. Uh, prayers. It doesn't mean that because someone wrote something down and planned ahead of time that they weren't being spiritual. I'd like to argue that this prayer, as it's written, as the Lord delivered it, is inherently structured in a way to give us a picture of God's world. And that world uh, being prayed by the believer or believers is to be incarnated or or to come. And and with that, the prayer can be understood as a, a microcosm of the Christian life. First, we we start at heaven, and then it moves down, and it becomes more real. It, it gets more fleshed out. It's a microcosm or a mini world that is within the the Our Father. We see a grand vision of God's world. That is the world that He has created for us to live in and and to work in. At the beginning, it's Jesus is instructing. The, the disciples to pray in this manner, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Just for those who may not know, hallowed just simply means holy or revered or uh, sacrosanct, uh, a word that, that just means that God's name, God's the, the revelation that God has given to us is a holy thing. In this uh, beginning of the Our Father, we recognize God as our Father. Now, in the midst of this, we're not simply yelling skyward. Jesus is going over and over again. He's saying, don't be like the hypocrites. Don't be like the Gentiles. He says in this chapter, or in this uh, phrase, do not be like the Gentiles, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. See, Jesus is not saying, don't use words when you pray. He's not saying, don't use written prayers. He rather is saying, in your praying, you must acknowledge God as the Father. You must acknowledge your relationship to Him as one that God has adopted as a son or a daughter. We are intimately related in this prayer, not only to our Maker, but also our Father who has the holy name. And with that regard, we then begin to address Him 
and ask him or petition him for things. At first, it says, our Father in heaven, that's an address, or we are, that's the opening of the prayer. And then we move into petitioning. It says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We ask him that he would bring his kingdom, and though, though it may be obvious that we're praying for God's kingdom to come, this radically shapes our worldview. We have to believe that if Jesus is, pre- is instructing us to pray for his kingdom to come, then it must be the case that God's goal— Jesus's intention here is that his kingdom would come into the earth and it would begin to have effect in our in our world. With that regard, God's kingdom is supposed to be coming and entering into our here and our now. When we pray, we pray in time and space in a situation with concerns, petitions, things that are on our heart. And when we see the our father uh, in the our father, Jesus teaching us to to ask God to bring his kingdom, we then must understand that God's kingdom is supposed to come into this place, into our situation. Jesus continues, and again, you can see this heaven-to-earth structure. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. And then it becomes very concrete, and the the believer is instructed to pray, give us this day our daily bread. God in this prayer is is recognized as the source of all of our benefit, all of our blessings. He's recognized as our provider, that just like a father brings home either a paycheck and the mom gets the groceries, or he brings home the bacon, if you will, the father is the one who provides for his children. And so in this prayer, God is teaching his disciples to recognize God as the father in the special relationship that he has brought them into, but also that they are not just tangentially related to a philosophical originator, or an idealistic creator, but rather he is intimately involved with their day-to-day life. He is a God who is near, not a God who is far off. Jesus continues and instructs with, with tying this idea to the idea of the daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. With this phrase, and forgive us, this connecting idea of and, it implies a number of things. First, it implies that we need forgiveness every day, that our forgiveness, that being forgiven by God and the forgiveness that we also in turn forgive others with, that forgiveness is a grace dispensed from heaven to us day by day. It is not something that you can just do one time and then continue to live your life on uh, autopilot. You must forgive your your brothers and sisters, in the same way as God forgives us, and that is daily. After connecting uh, the debts, the sins that have already committed, then the prayer moves even deeper to heart motivations. This connecting phrase, as, is an extremely important word. Many times the most significant words in the scriptures are not the big words, but they're the small words. Notice the power of this phrase, as. Jesus is instructing us in the manner of which we are to pray and into the prayer that God himself, Jesus Christ in the flesh, has instructed us to pray. We are building, as it were, uh, a formula, if you will. We are asking God to forgive us as we forgive those who trespass against us or as we forgive our debtors. Uh, 
you can always tell when someone memorized in King James. It's almost impossible to actually say the Our Father in any other translation once you've memorized it in the King James. It's a spiritual principle. We're asking God to forgive us in the same manner and in the same quality, as is a, is a word that's used to make an adverbial phrase. And no, we're not going to diagram the sentence, but it's important to understand the power of this prayer that Jesus is instructing us to pray. We're asking God to forgive us as we forgive our debtors. As is an adverbial phrase, and it at least implies in the same manner and in the same quality. But I think it also has regard to at the same time. And so in this prayer, Jesus is is helping to create a morality or instruct us in the way we are to live in such a way as we understand that our relationship to our Father God is as important in keeping of the law as our relationship to our fellow man. What did Jesus say is the are the first uh, are the is the greatest commandment? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. It's it's similar. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus here is saying that you cannot forgive your brother unless you've been forgiven by your father, and also you cannot withhold forgiveness to your brother if you've been forgiven by the father. Jesus then brings it home to the heart issue, what is at the beginning of all of our debts that we incur, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, what is amazing about this is that the prayer actually closes with a petition asking God to preserve us in our uprightness or our righteousness before him. And yet, in the midst of this, Jesus is not going to expound upon the remarkable uh, structure of the prayer or anything of the particular elements, but rather the actual core issue of the prayer. Notice often, again, just like the biggest words in Scripture are not most important often, but the smallest words, I think it's also helpful to notice what is left unsaid just as much as what is there. Notice what's left unsaid. This idea in Judaism that that a believer or a, a person walking before the Lord would acknowledge God as their father, a personal intimate father, not Yahweh who is remote and holy. And if you, uh, you know, touch the the temple or any of its things, wrath will break out against the, the camp. This is God our Father, the revelation that Jesus brings of Yahweh as the Father, although it was noted and hinted throughout all of the Old Covenant, Jesus brings it uh, crystal clear. It's like scraping off the ice on a window. Before you, before you uh, clear it off, you can kind of see what's behind, but once you scrape it away, you can see through. Jesus is doing that for uh, his, his disciples. He's saying, you think about God in this way, but I want you to pray, not like the Gentiles who just throw up, you know, prayer after prayer, hoping that they will reach some abstract deity in the sky. I want you to pray as uh, related to the Father with a personal, intimate relationship. This is a groundbreaking and unthinkable position in Judaism at the time. And yet, we don't see Jesus expounding on the significance of this phrase. After describing the kingdom coming through prayer instead of military conquest and military action, Jesus then doesn't rebuke the different factions that were living in Israel at that time who sought to overthrow the Romans by revolutionary means or by military means. 
No, instead, Jesus only clarifies the statement regarding forgiveness. In verse 14 and 15, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive other th- others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, this phrase and this wording is extremely important. Jesus is saying, if you, if you forgive others, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. What I do not believe Jesus is saying is that you forgive in order to be forgiven. And I think that's plain if we examine not just these two verses and focus on them and get hung up on the fact that it appears that Jesus is saying, forgive, then your father will forgive. If you don't forgive, then your father doesn't forgive. I believe that God uh, is wanting us to see in this passage the pattern in which these two sentences are to be understood. And my opinion is that Christian forgiveness is not merely retributive, as in, I don't forgive you and you don't forgive me as the cause of our forgiveness, or else if, you know, it's a chicken and an egg problem, which one of us forgives first? I believe that Christian forgiveness is not like karma. It's, we don't forgive in order to be forgiven, but rather we forgive as an overflow of the forgiveness that we've received. Though it may seem like Jesus is telling us to earn our forgiveness by forgiving others, I think when we look at the whole passage as a, as a totality or as a whole, we will see it in a much different light. So I'd like for, if you have your, if you have your Bibles, you can follow along. If not, uh, the, what's on the screen will have enough for you. But it's helpful for you to begin to see that the scriptures are the most beautiful form of literature that, in my opinion, exists on the earth or ever will, because they're inspired by God, the Holy Spirit, working through extremely intelligent people, prophets, apostles, who studied language and use it to give us an understanding of their intentions. Again, at the beginning, we said Matthew 6.1 is a summary verse, or it's a it's a capstone or, or an introductory verse to the rest of these verses that describe how we are to live out our faith. And then there are four sections or four repetitive phrases or, or uh, areas of this passage that, that give us a pattern. Uh, each of these patterns or each of these phrase areas begins with a when you. In verse 2, when you give to the needy. Verses 5 and verse 7, respectively, have two. there are two different sections there. When you pray. And then verse 16, when you fast. After that, Jesus then in each of these sections tells us not to do something. At first, when we fat or when we give to the poor, we're supposed to sound no trumpet. Later, he says, you must not be like the hypocrites. He then goes on to say, do not heap up empty phrases like the Gentiles do, thinking that they'll be heard because of their many words. Do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. He then describes what the hypocrites do and says, truly, I say to you, they have their reward. Over and over again, Jesus is saying, when you do these things, do not do it like this because they do it in that manner, but rather do it like this so that you will have your reward. So he says, here's what you're going to do. Don't do it like the hypocrites who do it in this manner, and they already have their reward, but do it like this so that your father will reward you. 
Over and over again, that pattern is, is explicitly clear. After, pointing, after prohibiting the negative, Jesus then commands the positive and tells us to do something. Give secretly, pray secretly, anoint your head, wash your face. But what does this pattern say to us? The pattern says to us that the hypocrite lives before God in pretense. Literally, the word hypocrite is a Greek phrase for the, the mask that the actors would wear in the Greek uh, uh, comedy and, and tragedy in the Greek play. They would, because, you know, if you've ever been to a Greek amphitheater, you're not very close to the players. So you can't see the facial detail. And so they made these extravagantly overdone masks that would either describe, you know, happiness or anger or sadness. To this day, if you ever go to uh, be a part of a, a drama club or attend a play uh, at the theater, you'll often see uh, a symbol, an icon to this day, of the masks. It's usually you see one that's a happy face and one that's a sad face. And the reason for that is because in the Greek amphitheater, you're very far away from the 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 performers it's not like television where you like you know when they go in for the kiss the the cinematographer is like i really want to show the texture on the tongue in your face kind of film it's not like that so they put on these masks to get uh, a, a sense far away of what the actor is doing uh now that sounds ridiculous to our modern acting sensibilities but that's the way it was and this word hypocrites means literally to put on a false face that is to to live in pretense before god what are these hypocrites doing they're they're giving to the poor but beforehand they're like announcing it it'd be like tweeting your offering each morning like today i gave 85 dollars, and next week i plan on giving 100 and then and and then at the end says please retweet fave if you like retweet if you uh, agree that would be what the hypocrites are doing and yet, that sounds absurd, and of course it's morally reprehensible, but Jesus is saying that the Pharisees, the hypocrites, they actually do that. They, they sound a trumpet before they give, and Jesus then goes on to say they have their reward. As in, if the hypocrites who are apparently trying to live before God, but they're not living before God at all, and their heart is distant from him, and they're merely trying to earn favor or curry favor with God, then they, they have their reward. That's the, fun, that's the totality of what they'll receive, is their faves and retweets. He goes on to say the same thing. When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues so that they may be seen by others. And then finally, with reiterating the, the prohibition of prayer, uh, of particular type of prayer, Jesus says, don't be like the Gentiles who merely hurl up words at the sky and attempt to be heard because they talk a lot or they use a lot of words. Jesus is telling us to not be like the hypocrites, and it's clear from this passage that the hypocrites are attempting to perform something in order that God would then be pleased with them, or that they would then have glory in the eyes of the fellow man. So if that's the case, it can't be the case that Jesus is commanding us to earn forgiveness from God. If he's just spent the whole passage, the whole section is embraced with these ideas of not performing righteousness by God in order to be recognized, but rather performing righteousness because of your heart being near God, then it must mean that we do not forgive in order to earn forgiveness. Jesus tells us to perform our righteousness unto the Father with our hearts lifted up to him alone. 
if you've ever met, uh, seen a song or, or a psalm that, that talks about we, lifting, we lift our hearts up to the Lord or let us not lift our hearts to another, what, what those phrases mean is that our hearts being lifted up to the Lord is allowing God to examine the condition of our heart, to prune out what doesn't belong, and to bless what he'd like to see multiply. And in this way, the hypocrites are not lifting up their hearts to God, but rather they're attempting to appear righteousness righteous before other men. And so Jesus is saying, don't do that, but pray to your Father. Ask God to, to bless you in secret. Don't pray openly only and make sure that everyone can hear you pray, but rather pray in secret. Because if you do it in secret, you can't ever curry any favor from man. Now, those actions do not earn you the righteousness. It's merely the case that the actions, what someone does, indicates their heart motivation. Why do the hypocrites sound a trumpet? Not because they need to announce to the heavens that they're praying. They do it to get the ear of their fellow man. Why does the believer, Jesus said, why does Jesus instruct the believer to go into their closet? Because that's where they can't possibly be led away from praying straight to the Father. That is, no one can get in their way. They can't be consumed with the fear of man or the the opinion of man if they're praying and, and practicing their righteousness before God alone. After the prayer uh, of the Our Father, Jesus varies on this pattern, indicating the importance of seeing forgiveness as a reward and as a blessing, not as something that you are earning. Forgiving your brother can only come about because your heart is near God. The, the hypocrites could never pray the Our Father in that manner. They could never forgive their brothers, but rather were harboring up unforgiveness. And so with this regard, uh, it's clear that Jesus is talking about heart motivations, and therefore we know that he's not telling us to earn our forgiveness by forgiving others, but rather, just like the the hypocrite sounding the trumpet, our forgiving others indicates our existing heart motivation before God. And this is where we turn attention to the parable. This parable, it's a pretty common parable. Um, you've probably heard it before. Uh, the, the verses... Uh, where Peter asks the Lord, how many times will my brother sin against me uh, and I forgive him, indicate an extremely wrong preoccupation on the part of the believer in in getting other people to treat him or her right. Peter at, at first says, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him, indicating that he's more concerned with being treated right by his brother rather than him loving his neighbor as he loves God. Jesus says to him, I don't say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. Now, what Jesus is not doing, obvious, this is obvious hyperbole, Jesus is not saying that you have an app, my daily sin trespasses app, and every time person A, you know, sins against you, you check a box and that increments their counter, and then at 490, you write them out off as damned to hellfire. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying that your forgiveness should be the fullness of perfection. That is, the seven times 70 speaks of God's creation uh, being, becoming manifest in the way that you approach your human relationships. The forgiveness that you have should, with your brother should be unending. Why? Peter doesn't ask. Jesus then goes and tells the parable. 
Why should our forgiveness to our fellow man be unending and as large as it as as it needs to be because of this parable? We're going to look at three separate verses of two verses each, uh, the the beginning, the middle, and the end, and then um, we'll I believe we'll see what specifically Jesus is referring to with regard to forgiveness. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven, Matthew eighteen twenty three, may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. One of the things with parables is that uh, you can't derive pure systematic doctrine from them. However, they are the most beautiful means of offending the uh, the rational mind or the intellect, and yet at the same time bringing a sword to the heart of the matter. That is, uh, in this parable, I'm going to make some observations, and they're not uh, objective. They're, they're slightly subjective, but I think that they're clear and they're accurate. At the beginning of this parable, Jesus is saying the kingdom of heaven is compared to a king who wished to settle his accounts. When you begin to enter the kingdom of heaven, you have to be begin to uh, deal with the actual reality of your debt. That is, when you come into the kingdom, God does not just merely bring you in as if uh, the, the things that have happened are inconsequential, but rather he demonstrates his forgiveness, and he offers you complete forgiveness. But the debt, again, is not, we're not condoning we're not leaving the debt on the books and maintaining that debt in the future. And we're not merely just writing off the debt. The debt really is paid. Matthew eighteen twenty nine through 30. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. Now I could spend 10 minutes talking about denarii versus talents, Suffice it to say, we're talking about millions of dollars owed to the king, and his fellow servant owed him like 50 bucks. Millions of dollars versus 50 bucks. That's, that's enough of uh, clarity that we need on the, the amounts of money that are used in this parable. And so when, the, when the, the servant goes out and, you know, finds other debts, he, he's kind of inspired by the king. It's time to settle accounts. And so after being forgiven, he then takes that debt forgiveness or that write-off, that credit to his account, and then goes out and finds his fellow servant who owes him, who owes him a piddly amount compared to the debt that was just forgiven. And then what does he do? He demonstrates the absolute irrationality of our unforgiveness. He's owed money. He takes his hands and puts his hands around his fellow servant's neck as if he's choking the life out. You can see the murderous intention in, that is behind this unforgiveness. Jesus says if you're angry with your brother that, and in such a way as to uh, call him an empty head or foolishness, that you're guilty of the judgment or you're, you're liable to condemnation. And so for the forgiveness that's required here, uh, it's in stark contrast to the unforgiveness. Unforgiveness is seen in this parable as murderous, going after the throat, not leaving any mercy, not fighting fairly. Even in the most intense uh, systems of boxing or MMA or fighting out in the, the world that is Geneva Conventions about warfare, it's always uh, against the law, against the rules, to go for the throat of someone who's in plain surrender. 
What happens to his fellow servant? He does just like the servant did. He pleads and asks for mercy and time to repay, and yet this servant goes for the throat. We're, when we hold unforgiveness in our heart towards our brothers, we are, in a very real sense, rebelling against the heart of the Father. And this does not earn our forgiveness or unforgiveness. It rather demonstrates whether that forgiveness has been made real or plain or to our heart. We've heard God's message of forgiveness, yet it hasn't actually affected the way that we look at our fellow man. We, we in theory, start to agree with the, the first commandment, but our heart is far away from God and we can't complete the second. At the end, Matthew eighteen thirty four through 35, and in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. How many of you know that you can't make any money when you're in prison? How long will this person be in debt? forever. Jesus continues and says, so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Say what you want about God being a God only of love. I think that's incorrect. Jesus presents a very stark reality that God the father will not forgive those who are harboring unforgiveness towards their brothers. But I believe that that unforgiveness that you harbor toward your brothers merely indicates that you have not come into what the scripture talks about when it talks about salvation. That is, you may have received pardon from heaven, but until that pardon from heaven begins to, to release your heart in such a way that you pardon others, then you haven't really come to know the Father. You're just pretending Jesus commands us to forgive our brothers, but this is to be done because of the great forgiveness that we have received, not so that we receive great forgiveness. The parable and its structure are clear. The, the king first delivers the servant and completely removes the debt. The debt is written off. In, in the servant's account, there is a credit put in place, and the accounts are settled. Going on, the servant then doesn't actually live out his forgiveness, but rather holds his brother hostage. And then in the midst of that, he doesn't uh, allow that forgiveness to shine forth or to go forth. In the midst of your repentance, that is reorienting your heart to God and forgiving your brother, don't pull the teeth out of God's warnings. Although I believe it's important to see the gospel motivation and gospel order of this forgiveness don't pull the teeth out of God's warnings in his scripture. They're there to help you. They're there to serve as a strong warning. It's only right that God should warn you to, to say and look at yourself, if you're walking in unforgiveness with your brother, have you really truly entered into the forgiveness from your father? The freedom from your past debts is the justice that rolls down like waters and flows. You're forgiven in order to forgive. Martin Luther King quotes Amos 5.1 when he says, justice, which, or not 5.1, it's in chapter 5, justice which rolls down. That is the type of gospel justice that the scriptures are teaching. You're forgiven in order to forgive. You're blessed in order to become a blessing. Don't take away from this uh, injunction or command to forgive that you must forgive in order to be forgiven, but rather that God offers you complete and total forgiveness based on the work of the cross that Jesus accomplished on your behalf, on your account, to put a credit where a debt was there. 
and in that he has settled your accounts. But if you do not extend forgiveness to your fellow brother, fellow sister, you're indicating that you've never even begun to partake of that forgiveness. You don't forgive to be forgiven. You forgive because you have been forgiven. And let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We do ask that you would impress upon our hearts the strong warnings that you give us in Matthew 18, 35, that your father will do to us, will put us in jail until we should pay our debt if we don't forgive our brother from our heart. Lord, we ask that we would see you as God and that we would not rebel against your word nor your authority. And Lord, we also ask that you would help us understand how great a debt you have paid in our account, and also that, that we would also see how important it is that that forgiveness would roll down like justice, like the waters that roll down. We do ask, Lord, that you would give us today an understanding of the importance of releasing our brothers and sisters from the debts that we uh, that they that they owe us, the the wrongs that they've done, the things that we uh, have been wounded by, that we would not merely dismiss them as not ever happening happening, but that we would, because of your great love and forgiveness, say, "I will not go for my brother's throat. I will return life for death and a blessing for a curse." Lord, we ask that your sermon that you delivered on the mount would become for us an indication of where our heart is towards you, that we would live in such a way as to put in place in in our heart the things that you command us to do, already seeing that you have already taken care of all of the performance, all of the merit that we need to stand righteous before you. Lord, we do ask you that this celebration of the Eucharist and communion would would to, for us, dispense grace, that we would begin to walk in forgiveness as a lifestyle with our brothers, that we would keep short accounts. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.